Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Live in Dubai, I'm Eleni Jokos. I'm in for Julia Chatley. Welcome to First Move. On the show today, North Korea firing a ballistic missile over Japan for the first time in five years. It's the North's fifth missile launch in just 10 days. Our live report from the region in just a moment. And Ukraine pressing forward with gains, forcing Russian troops to retreat from several positions. But Ukrainian officials furious with Elon Musk and pouring scorn on his proposal to trade land for peace. Now on Wall Street, U.S. stock futures, as you can see, are trading higher. And that's after months, uh, Monday's uh, rally, as you can see, Dow up over 1% and uh, doing really well in terms of what we've been seeing over the past month. Now, European markets all in the green as well. Weak U.S. manufacturing uh, data raising hopes that the Federal Reserve could temper its hawkish stance. Meanwhile, oil prices rising with OPEC Plus expected to agree on a major production cut at tomorrow's meeting. Now, a lot to cover today, so let's get right to our top story. All right, so U.S. futures are holding steady despite growing worries about the economy. American CEOs are feeling less confident that the Federal Reserve can achieve a so-called soft landing and avoid tipping the U.S. into recession. A new survey of bosses of large U.S. companies showing 9 out of 10 are predicting a recession in the next year. Mark Stewart joining me now with more details. Mark, good to see you. Okay, we're going to come to the survey in just a moment. But we're seeing markets doing quite well today, building on yesterday's gains. We're seeing uh, numbers in the green in Asia, Europe as well. Futures looking quite strong. Why is this? Because we've had some bad data. Indeed, Eleni, and it's great to see you as well. Uh, We have been watching the numbers all morning, and indeed, we are poised for perhaps another rally, uh, at least at this point, based off the numbers we've been seeing. Uh, There are a few things at play over the last 24 hours. First of all, there has been discussion uh, among economists at Deutsche Bank, and I heard from a portfolio manager just yesterday about the weaker-than-expected manufacturing numbers here in the United States. Now, we usually frown upon bad data, if you will. But in this case, it actually may be giving the markets a boost because if the economy is not as hot as expected, it may be a way to say to Fed Chair Jerome Powell, the hawkish interest rate hikes that we have seen lately may not be necessary. Perhaps this aggressive stance may be tempered. So that may be one reason why traders are excited. In addition, in the headlines a lot, we've heard about Credit Suisse. Well, we saw their stock actually take a little bit of a jump upward yesterday. Perhaps the market and investors as a whole aren't so concerned about the future of the bank and its risk issues as they were in the past. So that's what's at play right now. The market's open in just about uh, 30 minutes here in New York, and we'll certainly be keeping watch, Eleni. Yeah, I mean, lots to get through. Look, the question is just how much has been priced in. And, you know, when we see the CEO survey saying that 
they aren't so positive. They're expecting a recession. It's almost like cognitive dissonance with what we're seeing in the markets over the last few days. But it's really reflective of the losses we've experienced over the last few months. Right. And the Dow, at least yesterday, was below the 30,000 mark. But this idea of a recession is not really all that far-fetched. I mean, there have been whispers about that among the C-suite for for weeks. Uh, And then there have been some public statements. I'm thinking about the CEO of FedEx uh, expressing concern about a global recession. Uh, We heard from the head of Chevron expressing uh, Mm -hmm. concern about uh, fuel prices in the months ahead. But this is a survey of 400 business leaders from big businesses uh, conducted by uh, KP of course, that big consulting firm. So if we break down the numbers, about uh, 91% are predicting a recession in the next 12 months. Uh, 34%, though, only feel it will be mild and short. Yet another takeaway from the survey is that there is concern that there will be cost cutting. And one area where that often takes place is among labor. Will jobs be cut? Will they not be filled? That's a question that corporate America and really the world is going to have to answer in the weeks ahead. Aptly put. Mark Stewart, thank you very much for joining us. Great to see you. And uh, moving on now, financial markets, politicians and millions of Britons are waiting to see the British government's revised fiscal plan after a major policy U-turn on Monday at the Conservative Party's annual conference Prime Minister Liz Truss and her finance minister abandoning their proposal to cut taxes for Britain's Britain's highest earners uh, while much of the country is struggling with a cost of living crisis. We have Bianca Nobolo joining us now (laughs) to break this down for us. Uh, Bianca, good to see you. I mean, we we saw clearly what the markets thought of this piece of policy. The question is internally, did it cause fissures? What have you been hearing at the Conservative Party conference. A lot of swear words, to be honest, Eleni. The divisions are very deep. There aren't a huge amount of MPs here. I've been to about seven of these conferences, and plenty of them are deciding not to attend, not to show their support for the Prime Minister, not to associate themselves any more than they are naturally associated with this package, with this U-turn and political disaster. But those that I do speak to are quite angry. Yes, of course, the Prime Minister still has a small set of supporters, but even they haven't been happy with how this has been handled, how the markets weren't informed well enough about the plans ahead of time. That's why her speech tomorrow on Wednesday is going to be key, but I'm not sure how much damage she can undo. She isn't famous for her communication skills. These conference speeches tend to be in very broad brushstrokes. We can expect to hear about growing and strengthening the economy, about creating more aspirations for British people and championing the values of democracy. I'm not sure she's going to be able to fix the political mess that she's currently in at any Yeah, Bianca, really interesting. You've been hearing, uh, uh, you know, many epithets to describe the current situation. Um, the question is, you know, are we going to see her receiving the support? Um, because a visible uh, fractured party is also not good in terms of its base. So it would have long term repercussions. They would have to show unity of some form. 
That's absolutely right. And that's why a lot of the delegates here who are not elected but are party faithful are deeply concerned because they know that these fractures and that these divisions translate very badly to the electorate. And most parties do want to stay in power. Although I'll be honest, I've heard from some people privately in the Conservative Party that think they're in such disarray that they need a spell in opposition to regroup. Um, it's, it's just a very difficult one. Can the Prime Minister gain more support? Yes, in theory. But what we're noticing at the moment today, Eleni, and I see this trend building, even in the past 48 hours, is a destabilising effect within the party. Because the Prime Minister and the Chancellor have U-turned, MPs and Cabinet members essentially smell blood. So now they're out to reshape the Prime Minister's policies that they don't like, whether it's on the environment, on keeping benefits in line with inflation or a variety of others, they now see that she's weak, that she knows she's bleeding support, she recognises she won't be able to get a lot of these bills through Parliament, so it's their opportunity to try and exert their political power. Now that is a hugely perilous position for any leader to be in, and let's not forget she doesn't have a mandate from the country either, so that's why there is concern that she won't be able to rebuild the political faith, the confidence to function as anything other than a lame duck prime minister who's very buffeted by the different drives and objectives of her party. Uh, you know, and, and a dramatic flip-flop, I think, for anyone in power. Um, thank you very much, Bianca Nobolo, for breaking that down for us. All right, moving on. And the Japanese government says North Korea is threatening the peace and security of the region after Pyongyang fired a ballistic missile that flew over Japan earlier Tuesday. Tokyo warned people to take cover and train services were suspended before the missile crashed into the Pacific Ocean. Will Ripley joins me now from Taipei. Well, good to see you. Uh, the last time we saw an incident like this was in 2017, but everyone's saying this is a dramatic escalation, a dangerous escalation. Could you break that down for us? So the analysts I've been speaking with, Eleni, say that we are not at the level of tension that we saw uh, five years ago just yet, uh, when President Trump and Kim Jong-un were essentially threatening each other with war. Uh, largely, the reason that we're not at that level just yet is because the Biden administration's tone has been relatively muted uh, throughout all of this. Uh, there hasn't been any sort of provocative rhetoric from the U.S. side, at least, although they certainly are watching each of these, uh, you know, this unprecedented uh, binge of missile testing very closely, and they're looking at what kind of missile was launched and, and what the North Koreans are hoping to gain from this. Uh, the experts I'm speaking with say this is likely not as much for political reasons or to make a statement as it is to gain scientific knowledge. And uh, But frankly, it also is a sign that Kim Jong-un at this stage has no interest in diplomacy and therefore he's not afraid to launch these missiles to test them uh, in ways that he hasn't done before. Uh, this is believed to be a Hwasong-12 intermediate range ballistic missile. North Korea has tested it a number of times, but usually when they do it, it's a much shorter flight trajectory or it goes much higher up and then and it goes back down. But this test, you know, the, the distance that it traveled over Japan for the first time in five years and all the way out into the Pacific, this might be the longest that North Korea has ever flown a, a missile of any kind, even though they've tested missiles that have a potential range that is even greater uh, than the one that we saw them launch uh, in the early morning hours today. So what does this tell us about Kim Jong-un's intentions down the road? Uh, experts 
say he's going down his list, a list that uh, likely includes a, a nuclear test, the first nuclear test since 2017, a list that could include submarine launch ballistic missiles. And that's why you see uh, on the U.S. and South Korea and Japanese side more military drills, more shows of force to try to remind North Korea or deter North Korea from, from doing something that could potentially cause a miscalculation and some sort of some sort of accident or some sort of unexpected, uh, you know, tragedy. Because frankly, when they, these missile launches happen without warning, uh, things can go wrong. They haven't yet, but that might be more because of luck than because of scientific, uh, you know, prowess, if you will. Yeah. It, yeah, exactly. It's the, the notion of a possible accident that is worrying. Uh, Will Ripley, always good to see you. Thank you so very much. Now, Ukraine is making more gains on the battlefield, forcing Russian soldiers to retreat from several positions in the east and south of the country. Its armed forces released this video on Monday, saying it shows a soldier raising a Ukrainian flag in a recaptured village in the Kherson region. But amid all the military setbacks for Russia, the upper house of parliament in Moscow rubber-stamped Vladimir Putin's proclamation annexing four regions of Ukraine. Nick Payton Walsh is in Krivirich for us. Nick, here's the reality. These four regions are not fully Russian-controlled. So the question is, how does this change the game for the Ukrainians and, importantly, the front lines? Well, it doesn't at all. And in fact, it just each step that Russia takes to furtherly formalize what it claims is its uh, claim and uh, assimilation of Ukrainian territory as part of Russia just looks sadly more out of touch with the reality of what they're seeing on the ground. It's an odd position for Moscow to have chosen to put themselves in. In pretty much every territory that they now claim is theirs, they are experiencing losses, uh, losing territory as I speak. Today, on the east side of Liman, that's in Donetsk. Uh, it appears that uh, Ukrainian forces are pushing further into Luhansk. That's another area which uh, Russia says is now all Russian territory. In the same time, too, down towards Zaporizhia, there are some suggestions of Russian prog um, Ukrainian progress. But certainly the most startling news today is on the south in the Kherson area, where there are multiple reports of Ukrainian forces pushing forwards and taking villages off the, the Russians, at times quite a fast speed. Now, the Ukrainian military are keeping relatively close to their chest exactly what progress they've made. But there does appear to be quite a lot of movement from the sources that we're speaking to. And that brings to the possibility that yet another front for Russia, the third, is potentially collapsing in as little as a month. Now, we've seen what happened around Kharkiv, the second largest city in Ukraine, uh, about a month ago. We've now seen, after persistent pressure from the north and from the west towards Liman, the impact that's having on Russia's presence in the east of Ukraine. And then now in the south, there'd long been talked uh, how possibly Russia was going to exceed a Ukrainian counteroffensive on the southern area. But that appeared to have been something of a distraction to allow the Kharkiv operation to take place. But still now, Ukraine appears to be actually prosecuting that push in the south and it is apparently quite effective now so regardless of the choreography the rubber stamping of this it seems almost farcical notion that russia suddenly assimilated parts of ukraine ukraine 
continues to push forwards. At the same time, too, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky putting a decree out today saying that negotiation with Russia is impossible. He has simply said he won't talk to Vladimir Putin. His decree says they won't really see any need to talk to Russia at this point. And for their part, the Kremlin is saying they can't talk to Ukraine until Zelensky leaves office. So it's the battlefield where this is going to continue to be decided. And it's Ukraine on the front foot now. Very quickly, in terms of the partial mobilization, of course, we've seen images of a lot of setbacks for the Russians. Um, but, of course, that is still in process. Yeah, but it hasn't changed the battlefield at all. And, in fact, what we're seeing more of is signs of yeah. how badly that is being handled. The enormous dissent that it's stirred up amongst ordinary Russians, including, you know, prominent state TV personalities have come out and been very critical of how it's been handled. The only plus for the Kremlin of that would have been flooding their front lines with probably poorly equipped, but certainly more recruits for the front line. But we haven't seen that happen in any meaningful way. And instead, we've seen the troops that are there being pushed back and at times stories of how yeah. they have faced uh, supply and command issues. So, frankly, an appalling picture across Russia's front line entirely with this continued odd yeah. backdrop of them saying they've assimilated large chunks of Ukrainian territory as Russia, but also worryingly the backdrop of nuclear force. Intermittent, but still there, Eleni. All right, Nick Payton Walsh, thank you so much. Right now, we're waiting to hear whether OPEC Plus will cut oil output to reverse weakness in the price of crude. There's talk that production could be reduced by more than a million barrels a day. Falling prices and market volatility are a major topic at a big energy conference in London right now. Anna Stewart joining me from the Energy Intelligence Forum. Anna, always good to see you. I think, you know, a few months ago, we we're talking about needing more oil being pumped into the market to try and stabilize prices. And now we're talking about potential oil cuts. Um, I, give me a sense of the hot topics that are going to be discussed and why th these are going to be vital in terms of understanding the true supply-demand dynamics. Mm. Well, that is certainly one of the big topics today. And actually, in the introductory remarks, uh, the energy intelligence president said they're hearing OPEC will cut output by one to one and a half million barrels per day, so perhaps even more. And that's really significant. That's over 1% of the oil that's consumed around the world every single day. It's much more significant than the cut we saw last month of 100,000 barrels a day, which perhaps was really just a signal to the market that this was going to come. This was going to be expected. It will not bring much joy if it happens tomorrow to many corners of well, not least the U.S. administration, who have campaigned so much in terms of trying to get OPEC to pump more, not less, to keep prices down, to try and tackle inflation. But I think at this stage, OPEC wants to regain control of the market. And so much has been out of its control. The war in Ukraine, sanctions on Russia, and of course, the growing fear of a recession. And Eleni, just looking at the next few months in terms of the short term, there are lots of other elements that could surprise this market, or at least could upset oil prices. If you look at the G7's plan to put in place a cap on Russian oil prices, or at the same time, said the EU's plans to ban Russian oil from seaborne imports. Uh, there's some scepticism, though, as to how effective some of these measures would be. I want to show you one of the comments uh, from the CEO of Shell earlier today in one of the conversations. He said he struggles with understanding how effective an oil price cap on Russian oil would be. He says intervening in complex energy markets is going to be very difficult. Governments need to consult with market experts on what they can and cannot 
in terms of interventions. And actually one of the other big topics here really is the transition ahead for renewable energy and cleaner energy. And in some senses, in many ways, in the last couple of years with such a tight oil and gas market, we've been taking a few steps backwards, not forwards. I was very interested by some comments from the IEA on coal. Last year uh, was an all-time record in terms of uh, coal-fired power. It accounted for over a third of total electricity generation. So the conversation here very much from all the big businesses, whether it's fossil fuel companies or disruptive new energy companies, how to invest in that future and what policymakers need to do to really realise some of those investments. Lenny. Really interesting. Anna Stewart, thank you so very much. I'm sure we'll be catching up with you on the biggest lines coming out uh, of this conference in the next couple of days. Right, and coming up on First Move, finding the positive amid a whole lot of negative, some hopeful signs in a bear market. Plus racing to develop electric flight, a successful debut for the world's first all-electric passenger plane, all coming up. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. I'm Eleni Jokos. Now, U.S. futures pointing to further gains at today's open after all three major indices surged on Monday to start the fourth quarter. As you can see, Dow up 1.2%. Nasdaq looking strong as well. And that's after three consecutive quarters of losses for Wall Street, of course. But my next guest says there are plenty of reasons to stay positive despite what looks like a tough environment. Joining me now is Christina Hooper, Chief Global Market Strategist at uh, Investigo. Christina, great to have you with us. Um, I, I love speaking to, you know, internal optimists. Um, and I wonder what it is. What are the bright spots that you're picking up within the market? Because we saw that CEO survey. They're still expecting a recession. We've had markets coming under pressure, but perhaps this is an opportunity to come in and buy. Well, Definitely. I mean, what we usually see with market behavior is that when sentiment becomes so negative, it creates oversold conditions. Uh, one key contrarian in indicator has historically been uh, the American Association of Individual Investors. Uh, they do a survey every week. And when you see very, very bearish sentiment, and that's what we've seen the last couple of weeks is over 60% readings, uh, that tends to be a signal uh, that we're likely to see in the next six months above average returns. That's just what history has shown. Uh, so, you know, there's an old adage that tends to be true. When others are fearful, when the crowd is fearful, be greedy. And when everyone's greedy, be fearful. Okay, so I was just looking at this, the numbers in terms of the S&P 500. I think it's down uh, year to date around 25%. Uh, and then what one also wonders, if we're still expecting a recession, we've got to think about what has been priced in. And then also importantly, what earnings are going to show us during a recessionary period? Do you think that we still have some downside left before it is the right time to buy? I know you can't really price the market, but I think have, has the bad news really worked through the earnings scenarios? I don't think we have fully seen priced in uh, earnings, uh, an earnings downturn. I mean, let's face it, so much of the market movement this year has really been a direct, direct reaction to where the 10-year yield has gone. Um, when yields go up, uh, stocks go down. We've seen that pattern this year. So do I think that, that a big downward revision in earnings has been priced in? 
No. Um, but um, it remains to be seen just how significant a, a downward in re revision in earnings we might see. Certainly in the United States, if the Fed were to pivot sometime soon, we might be able to avoid a recession. And so we don't know exactly what kind of damage we'll see to earnings. Uh, a lot is in the hands of the Fed right now. So exactly. And this is quite important, right, because we've got a sticky inflationary environment. The last inflation number really spooked the markets. Um, do you think that the Fed needs to stop uh, being so aggressive in its interest rate hikes? Do you think that that's going to be quite pivotal? I do think so. I think the, the fate of the U.S. economy and to a certain extent the global economy is in the hands of the Fed. Um, and what they do, in, do going forward um, will help dictate where we go and what, you know, how significant the slowdown is. Um, right now, I, I think that certainly inflation is high. Um, but I would expect that inflation um, eases um, significantly over the next several months. Certainly inflation expectations are uh, very, very um, well controlled right now. And so there are a lot of reasons why the Fed should be able to pivot. It doesn't mean stop tightening entirely, but go easier. 75 basis yeah. point hikes in quick succession can be very dangerous. Yeah, and we know that can have quite a dramatic impact on um, the growth scenarios. But if inflation does remain sticky, if we do see an issue there, you know, there are very few tools that the Federal Reserve can actually use to bring down inflation. And many say that that is a huge risk for the average American because the cost of living is going to increase. And then, you know, that we can start talking about a stagflationary environment, they say, down the line. Oh, clearly, that that is a risk. I think it's far less a risk in the United States than it is, unfortunately, in Europe and the UK. Um, but it's certainly a risk, and that's why the Fed is doing what it's doing. But it can only control that portion of inflationary pressure driven by demand. Um, it can only soften demand. It's starting to do that. All you need to do is look at, at the U.S. Um, manufacturing PMI that came out the other day. New orders are in contractionary territory. So the Fed is doing its job. All right, Christina Hooper, great to see you. Thank you very much. Thanks. All right, so moving on, Elon Musk enrages Ukrainian officials, including President Zelensky, after tweeting his thoughts on what Ukraine should give up in exchange for peace. Welcome back to First Move. U.S. stocks opening higher again following Monday's big rally. The Dow is now back near 30,000 point level. As you can see, 1.26% up. The shares of Poshmark are surging after it agreed to be bought by the South Korean internet giant Naver. And EV maker Rivian is also doing well after it announced production met expectations in the third quarter. As you can see, those stocks surging today. And then... This tweet from Elon Musk is drawing criticism from Ukrainian officials, the tech billionaire, suggesting ways to bring about peace amid Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Among his ideas, redoing elections in Ukrainian regions recently illegally annexed by Russia and making Crimea a region the Kremlin annexed in 2014, formerly part of Russia. Claire Sebastian is in London for us. Claire, I have to say, when I saw these tweets and also the threads of these tweets. It was fascinating to see what people think. And of course, a lot of backlash in terms of Elon Musk's suggestions. 
Yeah, and then Elon Musk had garnered some popularity in Ukraine at the beginning of this war by supplying his Starlink satellites to provide internet access there. I think it's clear he has undone that goodwill uh, with this tweet, not only suggesting that Ukraine should actually accept holding referenda on the status of its sovereign territory, but really parroting a core Kremlin line with the idea that uh, former Soviet leader Nikita Khrushchev made a, made a mistake by handing Crimea uh, to Ukraine in 1954. That is one of the core tenets uh, of President Putin's sort of, you know, stance uh, on Ukraine. And he literally repeated that. The reaction from the Ukrainian side has been pretty furious. President Zelensky uh, tweeting out his own poll where he asked, asked his Twitter followers, which Elon Musk do you like more, one who supports Ukraine or one who supports Russia? I should say that that poll has almost as many votes as Elon Musk's poll, though we don't know the results yet. Um, Ukraine's ambassador to Germany using a particularly choice language uh, in responding to this, really capturing the fury of the moment. We've had to blur some of that out, but he called it my very diplomatic reply to you, Elon Musk. And even among the sort of anti-Kremlin Russian dissident population, Gary Kasparov, former chess master and well-known Russian dissident, uh, tweeting, this is moral idiocy, repetition of Kremlin propaganda, a betrayal of Ukrainian courage and sacrifice. Now, Musk, far from stepping back from these comments, is doubling down on them. And one particularly instructive tweet uh, for Musk to consider would be from the uh, deputy chairman of Russia's Security Council, former president Dmitry Medvedev, who tweeted kudos to Elon Musk and even suggested that his next tweet should be Ukraine is an artificial state, aligning him with a, a, perhaps an even more stark uh, element of the Kremlin line on Ukraine, that it does not have a right to exist as a sovereign nation. So I think if there's anything to be learned from this, Eleni, aside from the fact that Musk might be advised not to comment uh, on peace negotiations uh, around this war, is that Ukraine is very clear uh, that any kind of peace negotiation that involves uh, losing any part of its territory is a red line. Yeah, because a lot of people are asking, you know, firstly, you know, what kind of authority does he have asking these questions on Twitter where anyone and everyone could vote, firstly? And then secondly, um, you know, the impact that it has in terms of the narrative and the conversation around this, that it could spur more tension or, you know, create uh, more issues within the, 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 the conversations that are happening on social media. What have you been hearing? Yeah, I mean, I think it's all particularly jarring coming at this point uh, on the days in which we see the Russian parliament ratifying their attempts to annex almost a fifth of Ukrainian territory. And we see when we see President Zelensky signing a, a decree which basically declares the, the option of negotiating with President Putin to be an impossibility in the context uh, of these annexations. I don't know that it necessarily makes things worse, but it certainly underscores, as I said, Ukraine's position on this uh, and the sensitivity uh, of the issue around the issues around these attempts to, to sort of annex parts of its sovereign territory and particularly that Crimea is still a very sensitive issue uh, to Ukraine. So I think it, it just sort of underscores the divisions uh, in this war and, and really that Elon Musk uh, perhaps shouldn't be given too much of a platform on this, Eleni. Yeah, exactly. Important when people of his caliber and his strength and his, um, you know, well, uh, status on Twitter and social media, perhaps, um, you know, the impact that it has in the conversation has really been fascinating. Claire Sebastian, thank you so much. Always good to see you. Now, coming up after the break, electric 
flying taxis take a step closer to reality. This one's called Alice and has just completed its major test. That is coming up next. Up, up and away and you're looking at the world's first all-electric passenger aircraft on its first test flight. The zero-emission plane flew for eight minutes at an altitude of 3,500 feet. It's called Alice and the makers say it can fly for over 250 nautical miles and can recharge battery. Uh, just takes around 30 minutes to do so. It will come in three configurations, a nine-passenger commuter plane for regional routes, a six-seater executive version with all mod cons and a cargo version with a load capacity of nearly 1,200 kilograms. Gregory Davis is the company's president and CEO. Gregory, um, really exciting stuff. I mean, this is a test flight. It was eight minutes. Um, I want you to tell me about Alice and how she performed and whether you're, you're happy with what you saw. Just over one week ago, in fact, it was one week ago right now, we saw history happen uh, with the the first flight of Alice, the world's first all-electric passenger aircraft. As you said, the flight was eight minutes, uh, reached 3,500 feet, uh, and it went exactly as we planned. Um, I want you to talk, I want you to talk a little bit about future prospects here because this was the first test flight. So, so from testing to actually commercializing this, um, how many how many more steps do you need to take? Well, we're at the beginning of the next phase, as we say. Uh, after first flight, what we've done is we've started evaluating the performance of the aircraft versus how we wanted it to play, and now we we go through the the next development process to bring it to market. You know, the future of aviation is all around sustainability. It's about the three C's. It's about carbon, cost, and convenience. And what we're doing now is developing an aircraft that's going to take you and I and our families and our cargo uh, around the world uh, point, point to point in a convenient way. Yeah. Yeah, you're talking about um, 250 nautical miles right now. Um, you know, what, give me in terms of timing what that distance would be. And then obviously use, you're talking about regional use. Are you foreseeing more of a demand for cargo? Do you think that this is going to spur the interest of passengers? And where do you, do, do you think demand is going to come from? Today, half the world's air travel is 500 nautical miles or less, and, and somewhere between 20 and 30 percent of global air travel is in this, you know, under 250 nautical mile range. And so this is how we travel today. What we're going to be able to do with Alice is allow for us to continue to travel on the routes that we that we want to fly, those short range 250 nautical mile routes, um, without uh, harming the environment. Uh, you, you know, certainly the cargo market's very interested. Alice you know, it will be zero emission, uh, but also very quiet as an aircraft. It's going to uh, enable access to airports uh, that weren't previously available to us. So we're we're going to enable that point-to-point connection. You think about wanting to go, you know, for a day trip or, or go see family or, or whatever it is that we want to do, and we want to be able to continue to, to enjoy to do this without harming the environment. Alice is going to make that possible. Okay. Okay, I want, I want to talk price here. You know, what is the cost going to be? And I'm sure initially with any new technology, it's going to be relatively costly. And is it going to make sense for, you know, the DHLs and, and any of the other companies that are looking to shift cargo? 
today's aircraft, the ones that burn fuel, you know, they burn a lot of fuel. And fuel is aviation fuel is very expensive. Um, what we're going to be able to do is take fuel entirely out of the equation. So electricity generated from the grid uh, is substantially cheaper on an energy basis versus uh, versus you know even the cheapest aviation fuel. Uh, and so you're going to see a dramatic decrease in direct operating cost for electric aircraft versus traditional turbine-powered uh, fuel-burning aircraft from day one. It's going to drop that cost, and that's going to translate into a, a more cost-effective operating environment you know, for people who are flying on Alice. Okay, battery technology, perhaps that's also one of the big downsides, right? These batteries are very uh, weighty, they are heavy. I know that it only takes about 30 minutes to recharge, but could you take me through the innovations that are occurring within the battery space and how do you plan to solve some of these problems? Well, we are very excited about battery technology. Right now, there are multiple different technologies, everything from how the cells or, or, or pieces that form up a battery are produced uh, to the chemistry and, and physics that goes into battery development. We actually see multiple paths to having batteries that are going to power Alice. Uh, the, uh, the, uh, again, the technology is, is already there. You, I mean, you just saw Alice fly for the first time as a fully integrated system, and that's today. The technology is advancing so quickly uh, that we're going to be able to do amazing things with the aircraft in the next few years. Okay, quick question. How much is it going to cost me to get a seat on Alice? <laughs> you know I know what? you it's said it's gonna, probably it's not going to be too expensive. I know that you're saying jet fuel is expensive, but this is going to cost because you've done a lot of R&D spend and, and, and technically it's new technology, so it will cost quite a bit. Well, we have a very large market in front of us in terms of, of making the aircraft uh, economically viable. There's going to be a lot of pickup on the plane. In terms of the cost, obviously it's going to be up to the operators to set their own pricing, but we definitely foresee that the decrease in direct operating cost of the aircraft versus a conventional plane uh, is going to make ticket prices very attractive for you and me very early on. I hope so. Sounds really interesting. Thank you very much, Gregory. Great to see you. That's Gregory Davis, President and CEO of Aviation. All right, so still to come on First Move, followers of fashion are getting a backstage look at some of the world's most iconic brands. LVMH's communications director discusses its unique event after the break. LVMH is once again raising the curtain on some of its most iconic houses, offering the public a unique peek behind the scenes at brands from Dior to Louis Vuitton to Merchantan and even Benefit Makeup. The group is hosting Les Jeunes Particulaires later this month for the first time. Since 2018, the free event takes place at 75 houses in 15 different countries, including the unprecedented opening of Tiffany & Co's workshop in New York. Online reservations filled up in minutes, but all this is not lost. Fans can still queue up to visit some LVMH sites. Julia Chatterley managed to catch up with Antoine Arnaud, the CEO of Berluti and LVMH communications director. We have uh, 75 uh, maisons that are opening their doors during uh, one three-day weekend. It's something that we've been doing for, for 10 years now, every couple of years. People are just uh, full of uh, uh, joy, uh, uh, full of uh, uh, 
uh, are, are expecting it and are waiting for it to happen. But the most exquisite part of it all is that our artisans, our, the people who work in our houses, are even more happy and, and joyful to show their art. It's very unique for them too. If I look at the scope of the brands under your umbrella, we go from sort of quiet luxury of a brand like Laura Piana to probably one of the most recognized jewelry brands in the world, Tiffany's, right through to high street makeup, Benefit, and, and the Sephora chain, which is very familiar to perhaps to, to people who live in the United States. More unexpected, I think, for those that look at LVMH and, and actually don't know what the entire portfolio comprises. Um, some might be surprised. Yes, um, there are multiple brands, and you've you've uh, mentioned only the fashion and uh, and the cosmetic ones. But uh, we're also uh, um, very strong in wines and spirits, uh, in distribution, uh, and now in hotels. Um, our motto, and really the way we see um, business, and in this high-end business, is that every house is unique, and even though they are under the LVMH umbrella. They have their own DNA, their own way of doing business, their own values, and um, they're completely independent. Most of them have very different strategies. Some of them are even competing with each other. Um, but if uh, we, we are, we're often asked what the secret of LVMH is, I would say that if one was had to be pointed out, it would be the fact that they're all independent, but sharing a, a same umbrella of, uh, of values and of... Uh, uh, way of doing beautiful things. It's very important to you to um, preserve the history, the culture, the, the DNA of each of these luxury brands, whether they're hotels, to your point, or in the wine and spirits business or, or in the luxury fashion space. Their DNA matters to you. Yes, absolutely. Uh, I would say DNA and um, uh, having um, a long horizon. What we give to companies and what we give to the teams uh, in our companies and what we give to the designers in our brands is we give a long horizon. So they don't have to worry about what's going to happen in the next three months. They have to worry about what's going to happen in the next 30 years. Antoine Arnaud also discussed his views on attracting younger generations, including Tiffany's entry into the NFT or non-fungible token space. That's made them the one to watch within the luxury sector. And of course, with some help from campaigns featuring the likes of Beyonce and Jay-Z. Antoine emphasized the importance of finding a balance between what clients want in the future and preserving each brand's unique history. We view it as something completely natural. Um, of course, we want to attract younger customers. Uh, not always, but uh, it's, it's part of why brands continue to be relevant. And, uh, and I think this campaign at Tiffany is, is great to, to uh, attract that uh, new generation and to, to uh, make them understand and, and to uh, uh, explain the, the history and the values of, of Tiffany. Uh, NFTs is another another uh, thing that you mentioned. Uh, the CryptoPunks that uh, Tiffany did are, mm. are great, but uh, <laughs> it's NFTs, but solid NFTs huh, that you can uh, carry around your, your neck. So it's uh, not that digital. Huh? Um, <laughs> however, just to explain uh, in a second the way we see um, how to attract customers, we try to do as least marketing as we can. So of course, in certain cases, we need to, and we, we uh, 
um, you know, we buy media, so we do some sort of marketing, but the rest is at the hand of the designer. It's him who sees and who senses trends, uh, and we trust them. They don't have carte blanche, but they, in our group, are as close to carte blanche as it gets. I have to ask you about the metaverse while we're on this subject. How mm -hmm. do you feel about the prospect of selling Louis Vuitton handbags, as an example, for someone's avatar, in addition to selling the, the physical version? What does that mean to you? Can you see the brand mm -hmm. doing that? Listen, you, you especially in our business uh, and in the very fast evolving world, you should never insult the future. Um, so I cannot really answer that uh, in, a, in a certain manner. What I can tell you is that we um, don't have the vocation to be the first ones in this field. So until the metaverse proposes us an experience that will be uh, at the level of what we think our brands deserve, we won't really try to be the first ones in. Um, if one brand out of our 75 wants to be a pioneer and wants to you know, embrace that metaverse course, we will let them, of course. But I would say that for our you know, big brands and the ones that are important to us, our advice to them, and, and uh, of course uh, it's uh, often listened to, is to wait. Probably not sell Louis Vuitton handbags for avatars, but more start thinking about how to create experiences, exhibitions, how to create something that cannot be found in a store, rather than you know, immediately jump on trying to sell uh, mini handbags or digital, uh, uh, digital uh, sneakers. That's not what we do. I want to talk about digitization. I want to get your view on this overall, because what we saw mm -hmm. throughout the pandemic was a forced need, I think, for people to be able to shop online, to manufacture some kind of luxury experience that they couldn't have in person, but they still wanted the products. It's growing uh, consistently, and it's grown since uh, the pandemic began, uh, even much more than it had in the past 10 years. So. Um, it's evidently one aspect of, uh, of business that we are uh, looking at very closely, that we are strong in. However, we still believe that physical stores and that physical experiences are more important than any innovation we'll be able to find online. That's why we continue to open magnificent temples, which uh, the latest one not very far from here on Avenue Montaigne, and it's really something that we will continue to do. Invest in architecture, invest in design, invest in uh, something that cannot be reproduced online. All right, and finally, along with almost everything else on sale these days, expect to pay more for Christmas trees this season. A U.S. trade group says costs for labor, materials and shipping continue to climb. Some expect wholesale prices to rise as much as 20% this year. And you can bet that will get passed on to the consumer. One bright spot, however, we're told this year at least there will not be a shortage. Well, that's it for the show. I'm Eleni Jokas in Dubai. Thanks so very much for watching. Connect the World with Becky Anderson is up next. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.